how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Daniel, part two. When we come to the second half of Daniel, we're in a totally different atmosphere. Daniel 1 to 6 is very easy to understand. Daniel 7 to 12 are very difficult. We move from the simple to the complicated. We move from the third person to the first person, remember. From now on, it's I, Daniel. He's writing himself and about himself and about his visions of the future. We are switching from most of it being Aramaic to most of it being Hebrew. Therefore, we're moving into a section that is primarily for God's people. And certainly, I wouldn't throw Daniel 7 to 12 at an unbeliever. I think they'd think we were all crazy. We're moving from Daniel's present life to his future insights. And he makes unique predictions so detailed and so dated in sequence and so accurate in the light of historical events that uh, it's, it's simply history written down before it happened. It is the most extraordinary example, these chapters, of history written before it happens which faces us with this implication, with two implications. First, that the future is known by God, that he knows the future as well as the past. Mind you, uh, he can't change the past. Even God can't do that. But he can change the future, uh, but the future is known to him. He can see ahead. He knows how many birthdays you're going to have before you die. That's in Psalm 139. God has counted them before you were born. That's God. Man can't know that, but God can and does. Not only is the future known by God, but the future is shaped by God. That doesn't mean that everything is predetermined and planned. That's fatalism. There's a very delicate balance in Scripture here. We shall find a statement in the book of Esther when we come to it, a statement by Mordecai, to Esther, who knows if you haven't come to the kingdom for such a time as this, but he says to Esther, you can either fulfill God's plan or if you don't, somebody else will. And take Judas Iscariot, he wasn't predestined to betray Jesus. It was inevitable that someone would and Jesus himself said, the Son of Man must be betrayed, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Got to be careful to keep a balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It isn't that everything's predetermined, but God doesn't foreknow things and he does have the most free will. He's got far more than we have and he can shape events. I tend to think of a chess player. If I was playing against a master chess player, a champion, he would win, but uh, I would be free to make it the moves I wanted to make, but every move I make he can match and he can still win. There's a flexibility in God's sovereignty that we really must uh, hold very precious lest we slip into what is virtually Islam, which is a kind of predetermined predestination, you can't do anything about it. 
So it's not fatalism but nevertheless there is a divine sovereignty that not only knows the future but can shape it and whatever moves we make, God can make sure that he brings about what he wants to bring about. So that's what makes prophecy possible. Now when we look at the number of visions of the future in Daniel 7-12, I've got to explain something or you will be confused. Maybe looking at that board you think, boy am I confused like the American student who had B-A-I-K on his sweatshirt and they said, what does that mean? He said, boy am I confused. And they said, you don't spell confused with a K, you spell it with a C. He said, boy you don't know how confused I am. <laughs> so let, let's try and sort this out. The first thing to get hold of is that chapters 7 to 12 are not continuous. They're not a straight line of visions of future events that follow each other all the way through. That's the first thing. Well now that's simple but get that in your head. So when you read through chapter 7 to 12 you're not reading a straight history of the future. They are separate visions of the future. Nor secondly are they consecutive. You can't say that the vision of chapter 8 follows chapter 7 and 9 follows 8. They're mixed up. So it's not as straightforward as you might think. Nor, thirdly, are they coterminous. The separate visions do not start at the same point and they don't finish at the same point, which again confuses people when they read. In other words, we've got to read each vision separately and then fit it in to where it fits in. So they're not continuous in one straight continuous line, they're not even consecutive following one after another and they don't start the same point, they don't finish the same point. Now having told you what they're not, let's tell you what they are. First of all, they do vary in duration. Some of the visions are about a very short part of the future and some are about a much longer part. Then another may be of quite a short part and another may be of a very long part. So that they vary in the length of time they cover. So you can't just fit them all together easily. Do you follow me? And then they do overlap. So you might have a long vision covering a large bit of the future and a shorter vision which follows which overlaps that and gives it in more detail. So there's quite a bit of overlap between. Now comes the really complicated bit as if you're not already bamboozled. They do cover two periods which both end together. Oh, what I mean is they cover a period before Christ and a period after Christ, what we call BCAD, but in both cases the visions of this period end with the coming of Christ and the visions of this period are about the final days coming up to the end of history. So the visions are concerned with what is popularly called the end times, but both the BC end times and the AD end times. So looking through his telescope he sees two periods and didn't realise the gap between. Do you remember when we looked at Isaiah? There was a gap between. It's as if he looked through his telescope prophecy and saw two mountain peaks, one in front of the other, one lower in front and the higher one behind and did not realise how much there was in between the two peaks. Well, he couldn't see it. 
when you're looking through a telescope at two peaks, one in front of another, you can't see anything that is hidden by the first peak. Do you follow me? So let's look at this sort of diagram here. He can see everything leading up to the first peak, but he can only see the last little bit leading up to the second. Do you follow me there? So he can see from his own day, I'm now translating this into time, he can see from his own day, and his prophecies begin just six years after his death, and he can see right up to the coming of Christ, but he can't see anything after the first coming of Christ, but he can see the last little bit of the second coming, the events leading up to the second coming. Like most Old Testament prophets, he didn't realise how much there was between these two peaks. He saw it all as the one thing coming and he called it the kingdom and he didn't realise that the kingdom will come in two stages because the king comes twice. And we now understand that, but they didn't see it. And you can see that looking ahead, he saw everything leading up to the end of BC and the last little bit to the end of AD. So we have in fact the events predicted which lead up to the first coming of the king and the events leading up to the second coming of the king. And the astonishing thing is that both series of events are almost identical. For example, to rush ahead, there is a real baddie appears in both periods. In the first period, it was a man called Antiochus Epiphanes, and in the second period, it is the Antichrist. And those two are remarkably similar. In other words, as we study the events that lead up to the first coming of Christ, you get an insight into the events leading up to the second coming of Christ. You with me so far? A bit complicated all this, but I'm trying to unravel it so that when you read it, you can really study it carefully and fit it all in together. So history is divided into BC and AD. Actually, the Jews don't like the, word, the letters AD, Anno Domine, Year of Our Lord, so they use the letters CE, Common Era, which means common to Jews and Christians. So they say BC and CE, or actually they call this BCE, before the Common Era, and CE, Common Era. We call it before Christ and Anno Domini, BC and AD, because his first coming split history in two and his second coming ends history so that uh, we see this much better. So again, all that's a bit complicated, but I think it will help you just to think straight as we go further into the actual things. Let's go straight on to this next chart and then we'll work through it. You see, what he saw in the vision, what Nebuchadnezzar's first dream in chapter 2 was all about was that there would be a series of human kingdoms of decreasing quality. From the golden king, the head, through the silver, down through the iron to the feet of clay. A series of human kingdoms 
that would lead up to the inauguration of the divine kingdom. And so we have the Babylonian, the Persians and the Medes, the Greeks and the Romans and the king came during the last Roman Empire. Now then, he expected the divine kingdom completely to take over from the human kingdoms. He didn't realize that the divine kingdom would go through a period in which it was on earth alongside other human kingdoms. He was seeing this second peak as almost part of the first didn't realize that there was a gap. We live in that gap and we live in the divine kingdom and yet there are still human kingdoms and empires and powers, Russia, China, America. One day there will only be one kingdom. But there's this overlap which Daniel didn't see. Do you remember the vision, let's go back to it, of that um, giant Forget this bit for a moment. Here's the Colossus that he dreamt about, Nebuchadnezzar. And he saw that whole giant come tumbling down because he saw a rock from a mountain, a rock that hadn't been touched by man, a rock that hadn't been carved. This rock struck the Colossus at the feet and the whole thing collapsed. And this rock he saw as the kingdom of God breaking in on human kingdoms, replacing them all sending them all tumbling and establishing God's divine kingdom in its place. Now, he thought that would happen all at once. We know it's happening in two stages and that the kingdoms of this world have continued alongside the divine kingdom. So how, how would we best tackle all this? I think if I went through all the predictions that have already happened and then looked at those that haven't. In other words, let's look at all the predictions leading up to the first coming of Christ that have happened in incredible detail according to Daniel's predictions. Even to how long it would be between when he said it and when the king would come. He even told us that to the year quite an astonishing feat. Remembering that we live in this gap so that these things are all passed to us and we can check up. The predictions are already fulfilled. First of all, the prediction in chapter 2, that Colossus again, well, Babylon was followed by the Medes and the Persians, the Medes and the Persians were followed by Greece and the Greeks were followed by the Romans. That has all happened and come exactly true. Nebuchadnezzar's dream has come true and Daniel's interpretation of it came true. That's in chapter 2. In chapter 8 we have this ram and this goat and that again has all happened. We have a ram and a goat with one horn and Chapter 8 talks about these two. Now it's very obvious that they correspond to two parts of the Colossus, the giant. They correspond to the Medes-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and whatever is said about the ram and the goat in chapter 8 have all come true. For example, 
talks about the Persian Empire and that was a big empire. It stretched from India down to Egypt. The whole of Turkey was in it. That whole area became the empire of the Persians and it's now, of course, Iran and the Ayatollah. Do you remember the Shah of Persia had a huge festival to celebrate the 2500th anniversary of the Persian Empire and he rebuilt the whole thing and had a tent and all our, well, our parts of our royal family went to that and were celebrating and the Shah of Persia gave himself a new title on that 2500th anniversary of the Persian Empire. Do you know what his title was? King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now you can check me up, I preached at that time that the Shah had finished himself off that nobody could give themselves that title and survive and within a very, very short period the Shah was gone. You don't get away with things. God is still in control of history. God is to be feared. But everything that chapter 8 says about the Ram, the Persian Empire, came true. You can read all about it. Don't need to go into the details. The Greek Empire that followed the goat Alexander the Great. Do you know his nickname was the goat? Because he was forever charging. I mean the man was 31 when he died and he'd conquered the world. This man charged around like a he-goat, butting everybody out of the way. The polite followers called him Alexander the Great but the impolite called him Alexander the Goat. And Daniel foresaw it all. Isn't it amazing? And that's where the Greek Empire was. Now when Alexander the Great died at the very young age of 31, you study it, it was because he was a self-indulgent man as well and it was his sins too that contributed to his downfall. When he died, his empire was divided between his four generals. I've put the letters there. First of all there was I don't know how to say this, Lysimachus, can anybody correct me there? Think it's Lysimachus, he got Turkey, Cassander, he got Greece and then Ptolemy, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y, you've heard of the Ptolemies, he got Egypt and Seleucus got this bit and you realise that um, Israel was trapped between Seleucus and Ptolemy. Chapter 11 is all about the kings of the north and the south and this is the north and this is the south. It's the Seleucids and the Ptolemies that really became the pressures on little Israel and this is where you get perhaps the most astonishing prediction of all but no, I've got one more before I come to it. So the Greek Empire divided into four, Daniel saw it all and then said the real problem for God's people here would be between these two and in fact they had no problems from those two. They were trapped between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. Now the next chapter, chapter 9, contains this amazing prediction of how long it would be before the king arrived. Daniel, 70 weeks. But of course a week, the word for week, in Hebrews, the same as the word for seven, seventy sevens. 
really isn't 70 weeks at all, it's 77s. That's 490. And he said, from the decree to go back from Babylon to Jerusalem to the coming of the king would be 490 years, 77s. Now, we have a little problem here. Which decree is he referring to? Because there were actually four. There was the decree of Cyrus, which began the return. That was in 536. Then Darius made a decree allowing more of them to go back and Artaxerxes made two decrees which enabled Nehemiah to go and rebuild. Now which decree do we count it from? Whichever you count it from, it either brings us to the birth of Jesus or his baptism. It is astonishing. Now of course we have also another problem was Daniel using the solar year of 365 and a quarter days or the lunar year of 360 days? Was he following the Babylonian calendar or the Jewish calendar? There's a whole lot of literature trying to argue what he was using. The fact is that just under 500 years later, Jesus was here. That's near enough for me. All the details I just can't quite work out because of all the astronomical problems involved, but it's near enough. And in fact, uh, one decree would bring us to the birth of Jesus and the other to his baptism. Either way, the king had come. Isn't that astonishing to have said that? 500 years before it happened and he was right and the king had come. Again, you must get hold of commentaries to get all the details if you want it. So, you see what we're saying? The Colossus in chapter 2, the vision covers from there to there. Forget chapter 7 for a moment. The ram and the goat in chapter 8 cover from there to there. See what I meant by overlapping? The 70 weeks, actually they're divided, um, not just 70, 62, sorry, start again, seven sevens first, that's 49, and then you've got 62 sevens and then one left over. So seven sevens, 49, 62, 434, add those together, 483. I shouldn't have said 490, 483, right? Now, why did he divide that? Because that was the exact time it took to rebuild Jerusalem. So he said those weeks will cover Jerusalem. Then, after Jerusalem is completely built, it will be so long until the end of the 69th seven and then the king will come. Then he left the 70th week, we're going to look at that because I believe in the 70th week he was looking right past this peak and he saw this peak and there was a huge gap between the 69th seven and the 70th seven. But again, read the commentaries if you want to see all this. Now, chapter 10, chapter 10 covers this period and gives a remarkable insight into the fact that all earthly conflicts are matched by a heavenly conflict going on between demonic forces that are behind earthly kingdoms. Now there's a remarkable insight in Daniel which um, too many Christians today are making too much of. I'll come back to that in a moment. Behind every earthly power, 
every growing kingdom there is a demonic prince. There's a demon behind people that want to take over other countries. My, you find that easy to believe by looking at Czechoslovakia today, don't you? There's something demonic about the way they're destroying their own land. But you see, a demonic power is destructive and doesn't care what they do as long as we become powerful. It takes men over. And we're told in that chapter 10 about the Persian prince and the Greek prince and how God sends Michael to overcome them and deal with them. This is spiritual warfare. This really is. The demons up there, the princes, the evil angels, fallen angels, demonic powers behind all the battles that go on down here. Uh, earthly battles are a reflection of a, a spiritual battle that's going on up there. That's the unique insight in Daniel chapter 10. I just want you to notice that Daniel isn't involved in that battle. It is left entirely to the angels. I'm afraid too many Christians are building a whole strategy on just two verses in Daniel 10. I'm sure you've come across it. It's called spiritual warfare and before you have an evangelistic campaign you must identify the evil demon over the city and bind him before you can start preaching the gospel. Listen, I think that is really wrong and a distraction from our job. Jesus did not say, go into all the nations, find the demon and, and bind him. He said, go and make disciples of all the nations. Now I'm afraid this is a big issue now and I would be a bit unpopular in some circles for saying this, but spiritual warfare, leave that to the angels uh, until they make themselves manifest. I notice that Jesus and the apostles never went looking for demons. But when a demon came and attacked them, they dealt with it. I believe that's the model for us. Not to go looking for demons and trying to bind them, but to get on with our job of making disciples for the kingdom and if demons do manifest themselves, then deal with them in the name of Jesus. Paul was so patient with one that he waited three days before he cast the demon out of a girl that was messing up their meetings. Don't get involved in spiritual warfare unless demons manifest themselves to you. Then tackle them in the name of Jesus. We have another task and that's to get on with spreading the good news of the kingdom. Daniel, it happened while he was praying and God showed him while he prayed that that was going on up there but that God was dealing with that with other angels and Daniel was to get on with his job down here. It's just an insight we need to have. And again, you can exaggerate Ephesians 6. It's true we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but with principalities and powers in heavenly places, but wrestle means they attack you first. Don't go looking for them. And uh, we can get quite distracted if we get too involved in this, but it's an insight that we need to have that all the struggles down here are in a sense an overflow from a struggle that's going on in heavenly places between the forces of light and darkness. Daniel was allowed to see that but God told him, I'm dealing with it. Leave that one to me. You get on with your job down there. I'll just throw that in because I'm afraid Daniel 10 has become almost a proof text for what's now called spiritual warfare. Now we come to chapter 11. Chapter 11 just covers, where are we, a little bit of here. And I think chapter 11 is the most astonishing 
prediction of the future in the whole Bible. In 35 verses, there are 135 major events predicted. And it is so astonishing, I've given you a sheet of paper, both sides, and taken you through just 35 verses, no point in looking at it now, it's forbidding just to look at it, but take it home and if ever you wonder about the predictions of the Bible, take out that sheet and read it. It is only about a tiny section of history just before the king came the first time and in just 35 verses, 135 major events are described in detail. Now, liberal scholars just cannot handle this chapter. They say Daniel couldn't possibly have written it. It must have been written 400 years later. But God knows the beginning and the end and the end from the beginning and God enabled Daniel to write it. I've put that out. You may find it interesting, you may not. But if ever you wanted proof of prophecy, the fulfilments of this one chapter, it is the record in the whole Bible. There is no other book in the Bible, no other chapter in the Bible that contains such an incredible concentration of predictions about the future. You see, I told you that in the whole Bible there are 735 predictions. Well, 135 of them are in 35 verses in Daniel 11. Isn't that incredible? Well, it's a big test of whether you're a believer or not to read a chapter like that. Chapter 12 is entirely concerned with this second group of events leading up to the second coming. Now, all that is what has been fulfilled in the past, but there is one more thing I want to talk about. In chapter 11, I want to talk about that man. That's the Antichrist of BC. That's the only likeness we have of this dreadful man, Antiochus Epiphanes. And he is predicted in chapter 11 as the greatest scourge against the Jewish people before the king comes. And Antiochus Epiphanes' name among Jewish people, terrible. Uh, hardly like to talk about what he did. He became actually the regent in the Seleucid part of the Greek Empire, just north of Israel, and uh, he was the guardian of a young boy who was in fact the king, but he killed the boy and took over the throne as king. The worst tyrant of all, he determined to wipe out the Jewish religion. He desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar. He filled the temple rooms with prostitutes. I mean, he could hardly have done more. He erected the image of Jupiter in the temple at Jerusalem. This was what caused the Maccabean Revolt. If ever you've read that bit of history, the Maccabean Revolt came about through this man. And he is, in a sense, the parallel to the Antichrist at the end of history. They belong together. The one foreshadows the other. And uh, if you want to know about Antichrist, read about this man. Let's just look quickly at the predictions that are not yet fulfilled. Remember the uncut stone from the mountain that caused the human 
colossus to fall and the human empires to collapse and replace them, that has not yet happened. Even though the king has been once, he hasn't yet taken over the kingdoms of the world. He will at the second time. Then there's chapter 7. And chapter 7 contains some extraordinary things and I believe is, see some people try and line up chapter 7 with chapter 2. That's why I've put a dotted line and say that the four strange beasts of chapter 7 are the same as the four empires in chapter 2 in the giant. I don't think that fits at all. And there are many reasons why and I haven't time to go into all of them. But in chapter 7 we have a picture of four strange beasts, a lion with wings, followed by a big bear, followed by a leopard with wings and four heads, followed by what I can only describe as a griffin or a dragon, followed by a kingdom, a kingdom in which God's kingdom is established on earth by a figure like a son of man coming on the clouds to reign with the saints of the Most High. Now that certainly hasn't happened yet. I believe we've got here a lead-in to the second coming of Christ. And if you ask me, well, what are the four beasts? They just do not fit the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans. They just don't fit when you check out. There are so many anomalies. One is, for example, that these three will still be around when this one appears, though it is this one that is dealt the death blow to allow the kingdom of God to be established. I'm going to speculate here, and it is speculation, I don't want you to take it as any more than that. What does a lion with wings communicate to you? These are world powers at the end of history. America and UK. What does the bear communicate to you? Russia. What does a leopard communicate to you? The Arab world. I may be wrong, but if I'm right, then these three will still be around right at the end, but will be replaced by this. And I suppose one of the most astonishing things that people are asking me about today is the fact of Saddam Hussein rebuilding Babylon. Here is the program cover from the big festival he held there with Nebuchadnezzar and Saddam Hussein side by side. And he compares his profile and says, you see, there was a laser light show at Babylon and the face of Nebuchadnezzar and Saddam Hussein were projected onto the clouds. Here are the ruins of Babylon as they are and here they are being rebuilt today. There's the gate of Ishtar completed. And Saddam has even dressed his soldiers in the old Nebuchadnezzar helmets <coughs> and tunics and sandals except this guy brought sneakers <laughs> but there it is. And here are the new walls of Babylon rising over the ruins, all being reconstructed. Now I'm not going any nearer than that. I'm just saying the whole thing has become incredible again. 
and events are happening with such speed we need to keep our eyes open. But here we have in chapter 7, I believe, the last world powers giving way to the Antichrist and the final coming of the Kingdom, the Son of Man coming in clouds of glory to deal with Antichrist and to take over the kingdoms of the world so that they may become the Kingdom of our God and of his Christ. All this is there. And the 70th week here. That 70th week, when you study it, is a week full of trouble. It's divided into two, three and a half weeks down the middle. It's very interesting that even the book of Revelation picks that up 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, the time of big trouble. Well, we haven't time to go into all the differences of opinion about these things, but Daniel, I believe, saw it all and saw the first coming and the second. And in chapter 12, which is entirely future. He talks of the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked and the righteous shining like stars <coughs> forever. It's the final climax. When it all happens, we shall all know very clearly. Why was all this revealed to Daniel for the future? I believe primarily as an encouragement to God's people. And throughout these chapters, God's people are encouraged to stand firm, to do exploits, to bring understanding, to endure suffering, to be refined, to resist evil and to find rest. Those are very interesting reasons for revealing the future. God hasn't told us the whole future, but he's told us enough of the future for us to be able to do those things. Shall I run through them again? We know enough about the future to stand firm, to do exploits, to bring understanding, to endure suffering, to be refined, to resist evil and to find rest. Now you see, some people just want to know the future out of sheer curiosity, to be in the know, you know, to have it all tied up and I get lots of questions about this, people who just seem to want to get all the details tied up. I believe the essential reason for God revealing the future to us is so that we can handle it properly, so that we can be ready, so that we can stand firm and do what God wants us to do and endure suffering knowing that the end will be glorious. The other reason, of course, I believe it is a warning to unbelievers especially to those who want to build human empires, want to be powerful people. Ultimately, the Son of Man will replace them all. We belong to the future King of the whole world and the Son of Man will come in clouds of glory and establish the Kingdom of Heaven here on earth and we shall reign with Him. There's great emphasis on get ready to reign. He's going to reign with the saints of the Most High. We know who the Son of Man is we know who the saints are. You're going to run the world with Jesus. You better get ready to be good, responsible governors of the world with him. Amen. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.